Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Learner's Corner Podcast. This is the podcast for lifelong learners where we learn from anything and everything. My name is Kayla Mason. My name is Todd Hicksonball, a.k.a. The Todd Father. And we have a great episode for you today. Today we are talking with Sam Walker. And Sam is a leadership columnist at the Wall Street Journal. And he's also authored a book called The Captain Class. Phenomenal stuff. This was an exciting one. Yeah, and today we're talking with him about what has made some of the best leaders in sports. And um, the secret is going to be that it's not exactly what you think it is yeah so sam walker basically went around and interviewed um, organizations and and players and he looked at the captains on on teams and what made some of these teams that were prolifically amazing teams what made them kind of tick and so one of the things that he did was he would interview um the captains and so he kind of put together all this stuff and and came up with what he calls um the captain the captain class, and and most people would think of, of things like El Capitan, right? Like Derek Jeter. Well, he actually he actually disagrees, and he, he says, "Well, hey, you know, Derek Jeter actually isn't really what you want as a captain. Actually, what you want is the person who's willing to sacrifice it all." And he just goes through and details all this stuff. It's it was it was great. Yeah, and uh, this is na- this is a little bit you know kind of the geeky side of me. It was named one of the best business books by so many people of 2017. Yep. Yep. However, before we get to that, we have our Learner's Corner approved resource of the week. Todd, what is it? Yeah, so I like to follow um, just all sorts of business moguls and people who are just kind of killing the game. And Grant Cardone is one of the guys that that I follow, him and his wife Elena. And they create just so much phenomenal content on social media. Um, But Grant has a book that he wrote called um, The 10X Rule. Now, if you follow Grant or Elena on on Instagram, which I would highly suggest doing, uh, they're great follows. Um, you know, you know about the 10x rule, but the, but this is a book that I got as an audio book on on Audible. Which, by the way, if you're not on the Audible game, you need to be. Um, go download that app, start listening to some books on your car ride. You'd be amazed at how fast you can consume stuff. But anyways, um, I had heard about them talking about this book on on instagram and i went i checked it out it's been great i just finished it up about a week ago and uh great read um what's it about it so it's it's how to take your business or organization and and basically 10x it so like grow it take take it to the next level um and and he's got he's super super practical the thing i love too about his uh, the, the audio um book on audible he reads it and he gives all sorts of extra content that you don't get in the print version so um good stuff i would highly suggest getting it check it out deuces y'all awesome well that sounds like a good book i'm gonna have to check it out you should read it and or get the audible version right now we're gonna check out our interview with sam walker well, Sam, welcome to the Learner's Corner. We are so excited to have you on the podcast today. Thanks, Caleb. It's great to be here. You know, you uh, came out with a book called The Captain Class, and it's about some of the greatest leaders and captains um, in all of sports. And so I'm just kind of curious as we get started, um, who are some of the best leaders that you see in sports today? Well, I think you got to start with the Golden State Warriors. <laughs> I mean, that's really like the first place I would oh. go. I mean, I'm sorry. Can we still know. kick? Can we kick him off? <laughs> is that it? 
Okay, well, thanks, guys. We're we're <laughs> we're, uh, we're Cleveland we're Cleveland Cavaliers. We're Cleveland Cavaliers. Uh, fans. Yeah, yeah. We're well, we happen to talk about LeBron James from a leadership perspective because he is pretty interesting in that regard. But um, but no, the Warriors are are you know just Exhibit A for me right now. I mean, they uh, everyone is confused about the leadership on that team, which which is wonderful because that's kind of what my book. Found. That's what I found in all this research about great teams. It's like the leader is not necessarily the person that you would think is a leader. And on that team is Andre Iguodala, mm-hmm. you know, who um, is really the whole reason that that winning streak began. I mean, he decided to go to this team, you know, as a marquee free agent. Uh, and everyone thought he was kind of crazy. Even the Warriors were like, "Who us?" Mm-hmm. But I think he saw in Steph and Clay and what they were building, and um, so. I've written a little bit about this in my column in the Wall Street Journal. I, I did a piece about their leadership, how they share power over there. But, um, you know, Iguodala is kind of the central guy. And then Steph Curry and Draymond Green also play very important roles. And they work very closely with Steve Kerr. And that's sort of the, the four-headed monster of the leadership group on that team. And it's, I mean, you can see the results. It's just, uh, you know, they've got a culture now. And, you know, I think... The question is whether um, when Iguodala leaves, whether, you know, Draymond will be able to slide into that key role. Um, you know, he's got some things that I think he needs to work on, especially emotional control, which is one of the big factors of a great leader. But um, but he's pretty close. So they may be able to sustain it for a long time. Um, and, you know, and a couple of others, I, you know, in, in professional soccer, Man City and all their success. Oh, I mean, yeah. Yeah, it yeah. is. Vincent Company is just really remarkable. Everyone thinks, oh, you know, what are they doing? There's Pep Guardiola. No, I mean, it's they have this. They have this incredible leader captain. None of those teams have that kind of leadership, or even think about it. I mean, Arsenal, you know, Arsene Wenger. My God, I mean, he he didn't he, he didn't think he needed captains. You know, he right. he so he didn't need it. He didn't think about leadership, and that's the only thing that really sets them apart. You know, I think the Celtics are another. Great example in basketball right now, just because they've done so much with so little. But you know, they have Al Horford, and you know, I'm sorry, but he's the guy. He's that. He's that guy that makes that team go, and he's a perfect example of what I'm talking about. Um, you know, the Patriots have had a great run. I think they're sort of getting to the end of it now. But I mean, between Tom Brady on the offense and you know, some of the great leaders they've had on defense, from Brian Cox to Rodney Harrison, Teddy Bruschi. I mean, they've just really figured out the the chemistry that works in football better than anyone. Um, and I, I'd have to mention the uh, the All Blacks, the New Zealand All Blacks, which in my mind are the greatest dynasty in the history of sports, period, of this great rugby team that, you know, from this tiny country of 4 million oh, yeah. people that dominates the world. I mean, that dominates these countries that have... You know, 100 million in population, and, and they do it through this incredible, um, you know, service, a culture, leadership culture that um, I've never seen anywhere else, and just keeps repeating itself. And, uh, and they've just had some incredible leaders and captains and continue to just churn them out. It's a great advantage. And by the way, for listeners, if you have no idea who that team is, just go Google it. Um, and if you're a business leader, uh, just do a little research on that team. They like we talk in America in the United States about how you know we have the Spurs and we have the St. Louis Cardinals and all these different teams that are like we would view as as top. That team eats those teams lunch for breakfast, uh, like for real. <laughs> yeah, it's, no, I we talked about all the Yankees, the greatest yeah. dynasty. Right, close, man. Yeah. Oh no, 
they cool. eat, they eat people's lunch. They take people's lunch money on that. No, they're amazing. I mean, they have a so this team they've been playing since you know the eighteen nineties, and right. they have they have a winning record against every single country in the world. I mean, and we're talking about South Think Africa, about France, England. You know, all these huge countries with much bigger populations. I mean, they have four million people. It's like it's like Seattle. You know, beating the world at a sport. I mean, it's it's just hard to imagine. And I don't know. There's, there's some great. There's a big book by James Kerr called Legacy, which is about um, a lot about the culture of the team. And I just I don't understand why everyone's not studying that. I mean, I think Americans are pretty. We're all pretty parochial when it comes to sports. You know, we all just sort of look at our our games that we grew up with. But I think it's crazy because that team is just really something unique. When you lift up the hood on them, what's can you just give us a, maybe one or two things that that really makes them stand out, just so the listeners can get a better idea of what we're talking about? Because I just think that there's a lot of listeners that maybe have that this might be the first time they've ever heard of them. Of course, yeah, no, I mean, I didn't know much about them at all. I mean, I knew that they were great, but I didn't really understand them. And you know, a lot of it is funny. A lot of it comes from this culture of New Zealand, which is a really unique place because you know. There's a, a blend in New Zealand. I mean, it was a the Maori, the, the tribe that um, that you know lived there kind of natively. You know, was this incredible, fierce warrior tribe. And you know, in most cases where there was European colonialism, you know, I think the um, the native populations were eventually sort of subjugated or colonized. And but New Zealand's different because you know the Maori and the and the European settlers sort of lived side by side for a long time and eventually kind of both fused together into a into a country and for whatever reason there's there's a there's just a culture that really shows itself in sports and it's there's incredible um pressure not to stand out and not to make a big deal out of yourself and uh there's an, a real commitment to, to doing what they call sweeping the sheds which is you know everybody no matter how great they are has to has to do the grunt work and be you know, subservient to the team. And, you know, they they have this leadership culture where they've just stumbled into the perfect leadership culture because leaders on that team are incredibly humble and self-effacing. They're not interested in personal accolades or awards. They often, you know, they, they usually play in rearward positions. They're not the superstars. They, they do sort of the heavy lifting, the grunt work, tough work in the trenches. And, um, you know, the, their communication style is not big speeches or banging the table it's very kind of one-on-one um you know there's just a the way that that those teams function and and the fact that that culture keeps repeating itself is the only explanation i mean i'm you know everyone says oh it's it's a big sport in new zealand i'm okay fine but i mean it's you know with the population they have there's no way that they're producing superior talent and no one thinks they are it's really about the way the team plays together and um that's it i mean that's really the x factor the book that I wrote, I mean, the, the, one of the big takeaways, I looked at 25,000 teams from since the 1880s all over the world in 37 different sports, and I narrowed it down to the to the greatest dynasties. And I wanted to study dynasties because, you know, I wanted, I wanted to find teams that had built a culture that could repeat itself. You know, the teams just got lucky. And so I think there's a distinction to make here. What I'm talking about with the All Blacks and other teams like that is, is the ability to sustain excellence over a long period of time. You know, and everyone thinks, oh, well, look at this team that, you know, didn't have a great captain or whatever. Yeah, 
yeah, you can win. Any team can win once, twice. You know, you, you can get lucky and win. And there's a million ways to get that one championship or that one great season. But I think the goal that we often forget is that becoming great is a completely different process from sustaining greatness. And that's what we never study. You know, most teams, most companies, anyone who thinks about you know, wanting to be great is so preoccupied with getting there and trying to build that great team that when they finally get there, uh, they don't realize that it's a totally different job. Sustaining is something totally different because you've got the talent, you've got the right chemistry, you've got the strategy, everything's in place. Now it's about making sure that you understand how it really works so that you don't screw it up. And, you know, that's that's what, um, what I focus on. And, and when I talk about these great teams, I mean, they're not be the greatest team single season you've ever seen but it's that ability to sustain is there um so as we're as we're thinking about uh, you mentioned that there's the difference between being great and sustaining greatness is there a mindset shift that you see these franchises that are like top level who have these sustained dynasties is there a mindset set shift is there what is it? How, how do you make that shift or what shift are these teams making, these organizations making that really, you know, helps them to do? I think of like the, the San Antonio Spurs with the, you know, the 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 Spurs way and the, the code and things like that, that they kind of have instilled in their players. What what is that shift that these organizations are making? Well, here's the thing. They didn't shift and they're not shifting. I still, you know, I work with a couple of NFL teams and some baseball teams. I've, I've talked to a bunch of teams about this very problem, which is that they don't shift. I mean, you know, all of those teams you mentioned, and, you know, maybe with the exception of the Patriots, who were very tight-lipped about all this stuff, um, they backed into it. I mean, they, they, none of these teams built these, these dynasties. They, they kind of realized what they had. And I think the shift came when they started to understand how the team actually worked. And, you know, in the case of the Spurs, which is one of my favorite examples, and Tim Duncan is – just the epitome of what I'm talking about in, in every way. Uh, his leadership qualities fit exactly into the profile that, that I found. And uh, the reason is that, you know, over time they, they realized what they had with him. And they realized that you know, he wasn't, he had the talent to dominate the league. He could have led the league in scoring every year, probably if he wanted to, but, uh, but he didn't. I mean, he would do whatever needed to be done. Some years he was very prolific score. Some years he the scoring fell off and he was, you could see more rebounds and blocks. I mean, he would switch positions on the court, but also dispositions, you know, depending on what the team needed. And what they realized over time was that he was the glue, not just as a leader and, and as a player, but he was the, the piece that made it work. And if you look at the Spurs, not a major market, I mean, not, you know, the richest team in the NBA and had a, a very kind of, big rotating cast of people coming in and out for years and years, and yet they still... And what they did, you got to think about this, 19 straight playoff appearances and five championships and the highest long-term winning percentage in the history of the game. I mean, these are marks that will never be met, and they all began the minute Duncan showed up, and and, and they're going to end. I mean, it's already ending, and you can see it ending because they don't have a replacement for him. And um you know, I, I talked to them, you know, before he retired and, and the Spurs, you know, were very aware of this and they were very aware of trying to find someone else uh, who could become Duncan. I think they thought they might have had it in Kawhi Leonard and, you know, they don't. They don't have it. And I think they're realizing, you know, how hard it is to, to do this unless you set out to do it in a very, um, you know, systematic way. So 
the answer to your question is there isn't a there isn't a shift, and this is one of the big messages I have to teams when I talk to them is nobody prepares for what happens after they break through, and this is true in business as well. It's true everywhere. I think a lot of the startups and founders I talk to in that industry, and they're so focused on breaking through and getting to profitability, getting to that threshold where their their valuation starts to soar, that they don't think about the pivot they have to make when they get there, and um, it is really one of the great weaknesses in many institutions, and it's something I'm, I'm just on a jihad to try to, to try to change because you know chemistry really matters in sustaining excellence, and you know we need to start thinking that way. So I want to go back to something that you said earlier because I'm curious. Um, you talked about LeBron having an interesting leadership style. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, LeBron James is a unicorn. I mean, I, I, I suppose it's, it's crazy. No, I mean, he really is. And, I, and I'm, it's not surprising to hear that in a basketball context because he's probably a unicorn as a player in many ways. But I've never seen this before. I've never, I mean, I, I saw it a little bit in the 70s with a guy named Franz Beckenbauer, who was the captain uh, of the German national soccer team that won the World Cup in 1974. And he was kind of that same guy, but not even to the extent that, that LeBron is. I've never seen this before. LeBron is, first of all, he's probably, I mean, arguably the best player in the game, right? And if not clearly. So he's the superstar, the ultimate talent, but he's also the leader of his team. And he's more powerful than the coach. I mean, he's, he's essentially the coach in many ways as well. And even the owner. <laughs> you know, he's, oh, yeah. I were powerful in the people who were paying it, who were paying his check. He makes more money off the field than he does on. So, you know, it's it's this crazy phenomenon. And you know, so I I spent a lot of time thinking about LeBron because the thing about him is he does have some really good leadership qualities. I mean, he does fit my profile in many ways. Now, in some ways, he doesn't. And I think the fact that he's so out there and is so you know. Not not in the worst way, but I mean, he's very interested in celebrity and he, he's out there and he's interested in his public image and he's doing a lot of interesting things outside of basketball and he sees himself as slightly larger than, than the role that he plays in the game. And, you know, that's not a bad thing in, 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 in the world, but in terms of sustaining winning, um, most of these captains were very quiet. I mean, they went home and did nothing and didn't want attention and didn't do anything they didn't have to do that wasn't going to help the team win. And you know, that's the level of commitment I don't see from him. I also think that his leadership is really difficult. And it's, it's, it's the one of the surprising findings with these 17 teams that I looked at was that the captains were rarely the superstars. I mean, in almost all cases, they were role players or, you know, they were defenders. They were not stars. They were people who kind of worked behind the scenes in the service of the team. I mean, you can be a superstar and a great leader. It's just very difficult. And, in LeBron's case, you know, trying to, you know, having the ball so much, taking so many of the shots, being such a, essentially the entire offense at times, you know, that doesn't give him any time to do the fundamental grunt work of leadership, you know, communicating with people, you know, working with people, think, looking for problems and solving them. He doesn't have the time for that kind of thing. And I think that shows up. And I think, you know, his relationships sometimes suffer with teammates because uh, he doesn't get them involved enough. And, Here's my theory. I do a theory about LeBron, and I, I want you to write this down. I want you to, because I think I'm right, but if I'm wrong, you can make fun of me, which is that LeBron James is going to win, I think, a ton of champions. He might even win like five in a row, but he's going to do it at the end, very end of his career. 
because I think he will, as he gets older and starts to slow down, I think he's going to have to get his teammates more involved. And he's going to have to start to step back and let other people step up and fulfill some of these leadership functions on the team. And, you know, I think he's going to start to appreciate people around him and make those contributions. And I think that's his opportunity to win a streaming championship. So, you know, right now I think it's terminal. And I just don't think that model works. And unless he's willing to really change his entire approach to basketball, I think he's going to be close but no cigar for, for a while. Well, as a LeBron fan, I really hope that you're right. And I hope he wins <laughs> another five championships. Yeah, I think he could, definitely. You know, Bill Russell won. You know, Bill Russell, the greatest captain, I think, in sports history for the Celtics. I mean, he won 11 NBA titles in 13 years. I would have forgotten that. I mean, that blows the bulls out of the water and everyone else. And, you know, but he won. You know, he, he became coach, you know, at one point and, and continued to win. So, you know, in late in his career, he was arguably more effective with limited minutes than he ever was when he played more. So I think he's. He's a good example of what LeBron could do late in his career. Mm-hmm. So I want to go back, to, and you, um, we've talked about this, and you even mentioned it um, as well, about how role players or people who aren't necessarily superstars tend to be the captains of the team. You know, you referenced Andre Iguodala and a few other people as well. Why do you think that is, that the person who isn't in the spotlight typically ends up being the leader or the captain of the team? Well, there's two reasons, I think. Well, the first is that, you know, what I found, to my great surprise, was that, you know, leadership, we don't understand leadership. I had terribly ridiculous ideas about what I thought a leader was supposed to do. What I found was that, you know, in every single situation a leader faces, leadership's not about talent and charisma. It's about behavior. It's just about the choices that you make in a group context. And whether it's being relentless or the way you communicate or your, the emotional control that you have to have, um, and the, the commitment to, to creating conflict and to pushing back, it's exhausting. I mean, it is just exhausting. It is an incredibly difficult job. I think that's why most of them went home and just slept a lot, you know, when they weren't competing. <laughs> it's really hard, and, and you need help, too. You can't do it all by yourself, but, you know, it's, it's, it's not glamorous either. I mean, you know, we have this idea that the person who scores the most points and makes the biggest contribution to the outcome is in some ways just sort of by default the leader but that's just not true i mean the person uh who leads the team is really the one who's making sure that every leadership function whether it's big or small glamorous or or not is getting taken care of and that's the model that almost always works i mean that's it's possible to be a star and be a great leader as i said um, but it's really difficult and pretty rare uh in most cases it's really about serving the team now the other part of this, and I wrote a chapter in the book about water carriers, and, you know, that was the thing that really shocked me, especially my favorite example is um, the 1999 U.S. women's soccer team, this great team that won the World Cup and, you know, just dominated that sport like no other team for about five years. Uh, now, we all remember Judy Fowdy and Mia Hamm and Granny Chastain, and they had some incredible athletes and celebrities, you know, on a team, but the captain was only Carla Overbeck, and... You know, no one knows who Carl Overbeck is or remembers her. And that's the reason for that, which is that she didn't care. She didn't want you to know who she was. She had no interest in the spotlight, none. And, you know, she she was a central defender. She was never on the highlight reel. She never did any fancy, never scored. Laid the ball off the minute she got it. But she is a perfect example of what I'm talking about because 
she actually she actually led that team. The way she led the team was, um, you know, by distributing the ball and creating sort of dependency that her teammates had. She was the person who kind of controlled the the team's tactics, even though it would never show up on, on highlights. But the main thing she did was she her attitude toward that team is incredible. I mean, she wouldn't go to any of the pep rallies or. You know, she had no interest in the spotlight. And she would carry the team's luggage from the bus to their hotel rooms. I mean, she'd start carrying luggage. I mean, she's the captain of the team. She did all kinds of these things that were just little acts of service. And, you know, what her coaches explained to me and what she said about that was that, you know, her teammates understood that she only cared about the collective results. She did not care about herself. And everything she did, they knew, was to strengthen the team. And... You know what? What that does is that on the field, that's huge because she would she would spend the capital that she had banked by making sure that people were focused, making sure, you know, getting on their cases if they were making mistakes or being sloppy, or encouraging them when they did well. And you know, when it comes to someone whose motivations are as pure as that, it really means something. And it gave her this level of command that's completely invisible. I mean, completely invisible to everybody. I mean, you ask anyone, they're gonna say, "Oh, Mia Hamm must be happy." No, I mean, and, and she was the, again, you see this time and again, that it's these people behind the scenes doing whatever needs to be done, running into any burning building if no one else wants to. That's the kind of leader we see, and it's a it's a 24-hour grinding, grueling, thankless job, and it's not for everyone. Do you have any other stories just coming out of your research of players kind of like that who were so behind the scenes, might not even be people that we, we think of or even maybe really know of, that were just this other class, this other world person whenever it came to leadership? Yeah, you know, there's so many. I mean, I have a I have a big, great video that I play when I talk and give talks, which I think demonstrates um, why one of these captains was so great. And this captain is a guy named Carlos Puyol, who isn't a famous guy in the U.S. by any means, and most people don't know who he is, but he was the captain of this Barcelona team that was just the, the greatest professional soccer team ever from about 2008 to 2012. And, uh, he is this kind of long-haired, shaggy guy. He looks really odd. And he's on a team with you know Lionel Messi and all these like huge stars. And he was, again, a central defender, like someone who was just sort of out of the picture. And, uh, you know, he... Uh, he never scored. I mean, he never did anything. I mean, he was never in the highlight reel. I mean, he was a complete, he was probably the worst athlete on the team. But you watch his relentlessness and you watch his toughness and you see his, you know, incredible intensity and commitment and, and the way that he would um, sacrifice himself on behalf of that team. Everyone thinks of Barcelona as this incredible offensive team that just won with this incredible possession strategy. But you know, they didn't concede a goal in some tournaments, and no one talks about their defense and how great it was. And he, he's a great example to me. He's not very well known in the U.S., but um, if you ever watch videos of him playing, um, you see. And, you know, one of the things I've found with these captains is that um, their relentlessness and their toughness and their emotional control, their ability to play through difficult setbacks and not go off the handle, you know, in a way that hurt their team. Um, these things are contagious, you know, and, and that's really a, the key. I mean, some behaviors are contagious, and those are contagious in a positive way. Anger, resentment, you know, that's that's also contagious in a negative way. But um, I think these captains understood that, and that's one of the reasons they 
their teams are so good. There's just a marginal benefit you don't even realize from having someone in your midst who's giving it 100% always, never takes a, a minute or a playoff. What was something that as you were doing the research for the book and as you were getting ready to write that surprised you, maybe maybe uh, about a team or an organization or a player, just something that surprised you as you were researching, you didn't expect it, um, or it kind of played out in a way that you, you didn't think of? I mean, everything surprised me, <laughs> Everything. I mean, I just the teams that I, that I, the greatest teams of all surprised me. And then the fact that the only thing they had in common was, was the same kind of captain. So I'll give you two things. One is coaches. And, you know, I thought that's where I was headed. You know, I started doing this study that took, you know, almost 11 years. I started doing it because I thought, yeah, I wanted to find out what is the DNA of these elite teams, these great teams, and, and I thought it would be coaching. I really did. I mean, I just thought that's where we were going. And, you know, I was shocked, just completely baffled, because when I got this list of the 17 greatest dynasties, I, I looked at the coaches, and it was amazing. I mean, only one of them, I think, could fairly be considered a great coach when that streak began. You know, all the others were either had either been fired from the previous job or had a losing career record or had very little experience. Or in some cases, none. I mean, they were new. They had no experience at all. And it didn't make any sense. Some teams changed coaches in the middle of their run. So the fact that coaches didn't seem to be the one factor, I'm not saying they're not important, but they weren't the one factor that creates these dynasties was baffling to me. And I might talk about that more and the dynamics that are involved there, but that was just how's it possible? You know, we we think of coaches, you know, as being so powerful and important, but you know, really, what I found was that it, it's not so much the coach. The coach only matters if they have this, a good relationship with their captain, and if a really kind of partnership of equals, the way Popovich and Duncan had, or Belichick and Brady had. You know, it's it's a certain kind of relationship they have to have, or they're just not really going to be a big factor. So that was huge. And, the other thing that I just, I mean, I just slapped my forehead was I couldn't believe, I, you know, if you think about how leaders motivate, and, and especially in sports, and you think, what's the first thing you think of? You think, well, they give a big speech, right? I mean, they give that big, you know, win-win for the gipper speech. And what was amazing is none of these captains liked giving speeches. I mean, some of them actually never did it, never addressed the team as a group. They just didn't like it or didn't feel comfortable about it was corny. And I did not understand. I thought that was amazing. And and I took a long time to unravel this. But, you know, in the end, I realized that we're all wrong about communication. It's not about speeches or the right words at the right time. It's just, like I said, an exhausting exercise. Tim Duncan was the absolute master of this. I mean, you you look at him and you see a guy who's no charisma. I'm going to say he was so boring. I mean, he was not a charismatic guy, right? But, uh, but inside that team, I spent time with them and very talkative team. And Tim Duncan's very talkative, but in a different way. He talks one-on-one to people very intensely in the moment. And he listens as much as he talks. He uses gestures, eye contact. I mean, very intense personal kind of communication in the moment. And that's what all these leaders did. I mean, they talked all the time in the context of their teams. Um, but it was always in that way. It was one-on-one. It was about addressing problems as they, as they arose and, and also letting people be heard. And these great teams had this talkative culture, and Spurs are a great example. I mean, they just, they're always talking. I mean, they're talking on the bench. They're talking on the floor. They're talking in practice. It's just a running conversation. And um, that's what these leaders create because they, they have this environment where everyone feels heard. 
and everyone um, also feels accountable. And, you know, the benefit is that problems, issues, tensions, they're all addressed in the moment. Nothing festers. I mean, everything is raised, discussed, and table, and, and they move on. And uh, they don't need to give big speeches. Big speeches don't do anything for you. I mean, they, they, you can express how you're feeling, you know, but in many cases, I think uh, people who give big speeches, you know, sometimes they call out individual players and they just, they hurt people's feelings and they do more damage than good. So these captains didn't read any books or look at the research, but I think they understood intuitively that big speeches are corny and unnecessary. And, and you know, if you want to communicate, you just have to, you just have to work your ass off. They really, you just have to talk to everyone in every situation they need talking to and just and be talking to individuals constantly. And that, that would just completely upturn all my ideas about, about leadership. Yeah. Okay. So I got to ask who was the one coach that was considered to be great before their dynasty started? You probably have never heard of this guy. Uh, he's an Australian, uh, uh, Australian rules football coach. His name was um, um, from Collingwood, Collingwood uh, team. His name was Jock McHale, and <clears throat> he's like kind of the Vince Lombardi of Australia. I mean, the Australian football trophy is the you know, McHale trophy. It's the same kind of thing. He's one of the great coaches in sports history globally, um, and you know he was very successful before uh, they had this incredible run where they won five straight premierships and almost never lost and. But, yeah, it wasn't until he uh, picked a new captain that he really took off, and it was this guy, Sid Coventry, who um, is not famous, really not famous at all in Australia. He's not a high scorer. He's kind of a perfect example of what I'm talking about. But, you know, together with him, and, you know, Vince Lombardi is, is um, the other coach that I just looked at immediately because I, I didn't believe this was the case. I mean, I, so I went, you know, the, the Packers didn't quite make my list, but, they were close, and so I went out to L.A. to meet Willie Davis, who was uh, Lombardi's defensive captain during like, those great Packer years, and, you know, had a long talk and spent a lot of time talking to people who knew Lombardi, and Lombardi was a unicorn again. I mean, an incredible coach, and, and anybody would want him. Um, but really what I found was that it was this relationship between Davis and Lombardi that really drove that team to where it got to, and yeah, they were very similar people, and they always felt sort of discounted, and they had something to prove. And you know, Lombardi had been turned down for all kinds of coaching jobs, and because of you know, discrimination, his surname, you know, bothered some people. And um, uh, you know, and, and Davis had basically been counted out of football. You know, and together they were they were just so desperate to to win, and they had this um, very symbiotic relationship, uh, which was very not really as much boss employee as it was more of a partnership. And I kept seeing that pattern over and over. So even the greatest coaches of all time, the ones that we revere, um, if you look back and look at their greatest streaks, they always did it in partnership with a great captain. And uh, um, that was, that was really an eye opener for me too. You've talked about how um, these, these great captains, these leaders, these people who, um, are not necessarily the superstar. They're, they're a lot of times role players. They, they have these unbelievable leadership qualities and, and things that they do. What every team um, during the season at different points, they go through adversity and conflict. What, as you were looking and studying these, these, these different teams, what did, was there something that you could pick out that was like, yes, when they went through adversity or conflict, this was a thing that they did? 
Um, or, you know, was it just there was a mentality that was created on on these teams? I'm just curious as to what you saw as they faced adversity and conflict. Yeah, no, it's a great question. And this is another thing that just shocked me because, you know, in sports especially, you know what it's like. If some guy creates conflict or is a clubhouse lawyer, whatever, clubhouse cancer, I mean, they, they get rid of them. I mean, this happens all the time, and they just don't. They think conflict is bad. A lot of organizations are are scared of it because they think it destroys team harmony, right? So, I found that these captains over and over again. I mean, man, they they would push back on anything. I mean, it was really amazing. I mean, Jack Lambert once of the Steelers, a great captain that defense in steel curtain defense. <laughs> you know, he he went bananas when they tried to change the the their players' diet. You know, like something as small as that, you know, all the way up to big things like strategy. So I didn't understand how introducing conflict could be good for teams. And what I learned was that there's been a lot of research on this. And, you know, what researchers are kind of realizing in team context is that um, there's two kinds of conflict. And all conflict's not the same. There's a kind of conflict that they call uh, personal conflict, which is just, you know, it stems from. It sources like you just don't like somebody, right? People just don't like each other, and it's really personal, and that's always toxic to the team. But there's another kind of conflict that they call task conflict, and task conflict is, you know, when when the source of the argument is just you know about how the team's going about its business and what it's doing and what it should be doing, how it should you know, be approaching its work, and it's not personal at all. It might get personal, it might feel, make make hurt people's feelings, but it's really about making the team better. And we don't make a distinction between those two kinds of conflict. And sometimes it's almost impossible to see. So this is my favorite story ever uh, about conflict on a team. So you remember, you may remember 1980, Lake Placid, the Miracle on Ice, the U.S. hockey team beat the Russians, right? One of the great upsets in sports history, this huge humiliation for the Soviet Union during the Cold War, right? I mean, a mess. And uh, so... I kind of picked this story up after the game, and I, and I focused on this Russian team. And so what happened after the game is the coach, this guy Victor Tikhanov, the, the Russian team, he gathered players together and said, look, we lost as a team. We all share the blame equally. And that's the story we're going to tell in Moscow. And no one knew what was going to happen to these guys, right? Because it was like a disaster. Um, so they flew back, and they're on the plane, and uh, Tikhanov was up in the first-class cabin with his uh, assistant coaches and and some Soviet dignitaries, and he was telling a totally different story. He's like, this guy was terrible. That guy is awful. we got to get rid of this. And he was basically singling out individual players, which is what he said he wasn't going to do. And unbeknownst to him, just about 10 feet away in the cockpit of the plane was this guy, Valery Vasilyev. He was a, a defense, veteran defenseman on the team. And um, Vasilyev heard everything that, that his coach said. And, you know, he... Most of us probably wouldn't have, you know, wanted to to say anything in that moment, especially in the Soviet Union, right? But so Vasilyev gets pissed, and he comes running out of the cabin, and he uh, a cockpit, and he grabs Tikhanov by the throat and starts choking, shaking him violently, and he says, "I will throw you off this plane right now if you don't take it back." And this is crazy, right? So they haul him back to the cabin. You know, everyone absolutely thinks, "God, he's going to go to the gulag." That's the last we're going to see of him. But uh, I talked to his teammates about this, and, and they said that a couple of days later they had practice in Moscow, and uh, Vasiliev, you know, walks in, and you know he's whistling a tune, and you know he's like, "Hey, coach, hey guys," and he sits down, he puts on his skates, grabs a stick, and goes out to uh, 
uh, to go back to work. And, you know, they were stunned. <laughs> like nothing had happened, right? And uh, people didn't understand this. And, you know, ultimately, though, what happened was incredible. So, you know, the team would have, should have fallen apart. And they got rid of a bunch of players after that loss in my classic. But, uh, but they turned into the greatest hockey team ever put on skates, like, period. I mean, they immediately, their first game, they played Sweden in Sweden and beat them 12 to 1. And, and they played a team of the uh, of NHL All-Stars that was the greatest they'd ever assembled. I mean, it was Bobby Orr, Gretzky, Dennis Potvin, Gila Fleur. I mean, it was an amazing team. And they beat them 8 to 1. 8 to 1, I just wiped them off the yeah. ice. So this is the greatest team ever. And Vasiliev was made captain uh, early on. And, you know, he is the greatest hockey captain, period. But, you know, that is – that was baffling to me because I'm like, how did that winning come out of that moment when the team should have fallen apart? And what I realized was that, you know, it sure looked like personal conflict, right? I mean, you choked your coach in an airplane. Tries to, right? Well, remember what Charles Sprewell did? I mean, this is personal, right? This right. is like – it looked personal. But, it, you know, but I think everyone understood, it, even in the Soviet Union, that it wasn't. You know, Vasiliev didn't think it was personal. I mean, he did what he did because he thought he needed to hold that team together at a moment where it easily could have just fallen apart. And everyone understood exactly why he'd done what he'd done. And it was task conflict. It was, it was for the benefit of the team. And, you know, I think too often we don't see that. And we look at players who agitate and players who are always pushing back, and we think they're just, you know, selfish or, or you know, we think they're annoying or self-centered and we don't really think about the motives and you know conflict is it's been shown over and over it's hugely important especially on performance teams teams that work together in real time and you have to have you have to be able to argue you know productively and and even if it gets heated you have to be able to do it and recover from it and continue to play um that's what all these teams were able to do and it really came down to the personality of the captain and the, the fact that they understood that you never make personal attacks you never make it personal that you have to create conflict one of the examples I think of um, whenever I whenever I you wrote this statement in your book, it says when it comes to freakish success, lavish spending seems to have little to do with it. One of the examples I think of is how everybody talks about the, the Yankees, right? And you think of the Yankees of the 70s, of the 90s, uh, of the late 2000s, whenever they they went out and got CC Sabathia, Mark Teixeira. Those are the things that people think of and point to and they say, well, that's wrong because we can see the Yankees doing that. But you say something different. Why is that? So a couple of things on this. Like I, I'm looking at my giant stack of hate mail, you know, I got from <laughs> about Derek Jeter because um, that's been a really tough one. Derek Jeter was a terrible captain. I mean, he's, he's, he's not a great leader, never should have been a leader. And his track record is miserable. I'm sorry. I mean, everyone, everyone's shocked when I say that, but they forget they the Yankees won those first, you know, those that burst of titles that ended in you know with the loss to the uh, to the Diamondbacks in 2001. You know, they he wasn't captain then. You know, they had Paul O'Neill, and Paul O'Neill is um, just walked out of my profile. I mean, in every way. I mean, he's exactly that kind of player. And Paul O'Neill was really the glue. The minute Paul O'Neill left, what happened? Okay, well, you know, they they. Sort of sputtered. I mean, they they had they went to the World Series and totally out of three, but they lost the Marlins. And okay, so Derek Jeter became captain, right? And here's a, if you look at his numbers, so he was captain for twelve years. They won the World Series once in twelve years. 
And over that span of time, I actually looked it up and, and did the math. They outspent the nearest competitor in Major League Baseball by $1 billion over that period of time. So, I mean, that just That's tells crazy. you No, They spent a billion dollars on baseball more than anybody else. And, and they won one World Series. And, you know, if you don't think leadership's important, I mean, Derek Jeter is done. I mean, he's, he, look, he's a terrific player, a great role model, and he's a Hall of Famer. And, and we should admire him because he's a, a great person, a great athlete. But as a leader, he's done so much damage, you know, to our concept of what leadership is supposed to be. Because, you know, what he was is this weird phenomenon. I've never seen this. He's a commercial captain, you know, which is the only way I can describe it. I mean, he was great for business. I mean, just great. I mean, just for the whole game. But especially for the Yankees. And when the Yankees, when he started in the Yankees, they were worth about $220 million. And, uh, you know, by the time he left, I think their enterprise value was somewhere around $5 billion. So, and they have a new stadium. I mean, they, they, they're grossing an insane amount of money. He was great. I mean, he, but he's, he's great for business. You know, he was, he's a great captain for, in that respect. But in terms of winning and creating team chemistry, I mean, he's a complete failure. And, you know, I hate to say that, but I, I, there's just no other way to, no other argument. So, yeah, that's, that's, that's the problem. I think, you know, that we, you know, we don't really, we don't really see, uh, see that necessarily. We don't really think in the, along those lines. And, um, your, your question again was something about something else. So what was it? It was, uh. So you, you talk about how, um it doesn't necessarily mean just because somebody's spending a lot oh, of money. Spending, right, of course. Yeah. Well, no, I, I think that sort of answers your question, but I think that the, the bigger point about spending is that uh, I keep telling teams this and, you know, I, it's a new concept and it's hard, I think for them to, to, to understand, but the thing that helps you sustain excellence over the longest period of time is actually very expensive. And it is, because it's not the superstar of the coach. It's this person in the middle of your organization who is completely devoted only to one thing, which is the team's outcome. And does not care about themselves, does not expect to be paid better than anyone, is not going to get poached by every team that wants the player, and is not selling tickets for you. Um, these people are inexpensive, you know, and, and because we, we don't see them. We don't understand the role they play. But what no one understands about sustaining excellence is what I try to show in the book is that, you know, a lot of companies, you know, in Silicon Valley, I mean, they, they don't believe in this kind of middle management. I mean, they think you need, you know, the CEO, that, which is essentially the coach, talking directly to the star talent, right? And you, you kind of eliminate the middle. And you, you, you that's kind of the, the formula a lot of people use. And what people don't understand is that the only measure of a team that sustains greatness is that it got through the really rough moments when it all should have fallen apart. And those are the moments I try to show in the book where these captains emerge. Now, leadership is actually not that – it's not something you notice. It's not even that important when everything's going well. I mean, you know, there are a lot of different leadership styles that can, that can work when you're winning. It's when things get bad and get tough because that's when the, the, the coaches start to overfunction and the superstars are thinking, mm, you know, maybe it's time for a trade. Maybe it's time to you know, look at my resume, you know. They, they just say they could go anywhere, and you sort of lose those two essential people. The only people who hold you together are those quiet leaders who care more about the team than they care about themselves. And 
you know, there's just pure gold in that situation. They may not be, you know, flashy or, or, you know, amazing talents, but they're the people who are going to use those leadership skills to hold the team together and to get you through. And that's the only reason these teams endure. I mean, they're not the greatest, most talented teams ever, but they endured. And they endured because of this leadership model. What would you say are maybe one or two things that the captains in sports do that people outside of sports can start implementing right away? There's two things that, you know, there are seven traits in the book that I talk about, and I think all of them are relevant, you know, to some extent in, in business and the military and other other places. And I've, you know, I've, I've done a lot of research and talked to a lot of people in those worlds, and there's a lot of overlap. Now, I think there are two things that I think fit best there are two things that anyone can can really do, no matter what their what their calling is. And um, the first is emotional control. And I talked a little bit about this. And it's been a real big lesson for me because, you know, I think it's the one thing that I, well, not the one thing, one of several things that I struggle with as a manager is um, these captains were able to set aside anything. I mean, any difficulty they were having at home, any. Uh, any problems. Um, and on the field, you know, they could be very emotional, but never, never would lose it. I never would lose it. would never do anything out of emotion that might hurt the team. Um, they, they would act emotionally and do some things that were kind of nasty at times, but there was always a purpose to them. I mean, there was a competitive purpose to them, uh, and, and they were calculated in many ways. So, you know, a recent example, there's many great examples, but one recent example of this is Tom Brady. And, you know, Tom Brady is a little rare in that he's a superstar and a great leader as well. But, uh, but yeah, of course, he was you know, not a big draft pick, and no one ever imagined he would amount to what he did. But um, Tom Brady, a couple of years ago, you remember Deflategate, right? And, and, mm-hmm. and he, he suffered the suspension in, in this huge, humiliating battle with the NFL and spent, spent his, sat out his four games, and then he came back and you know played not just well, but Lit better, the world on ever, fire. better than ever. I mean, you know, despite that distraction. now. They won the Super Bowl. They beat the Falcons in that incredible game. I mean, it was just really an amazing display. He, he had the ability to control those emotions and not just play the same, but even better. I'd be hyper-focused. And, um, you know, the the thing that really got me, though, was after that Super Bowl, we see his mother. And his she's wearing a scarf on her head. And we, we find out that she's been going through chemotherapy that year. And she did diagnosed with cancer. And no one knew this. You know, because Tom Brady hadn't said a word about it. Not a word. I mean, he just didn't bring it to the office. And, you know, he, he obviously was dealing with it in his private time, but not, never, never affected his ability to perform. And, you know, so that's kind of an example of that incredible ability. Now, it also just translates to business, I think, because, you know, too often as bosses, I think we, you know, we just let our moods show, you know, and we... Little things that are bothering us, you know, we let them get to us. We, we, they affect the way we treat people. We, you, you know, we'll be under a lot of pressure emotionally in some way, and we won't we perform worse. You know, we, or we, we don't perform the same. And we, in reality, we need to be better in those moments. And that's really important. And it, it's helped me a lot. I think just knowing, you know, that you have to be consistent and have to leave that emotion behind at the office. And now what happens, and people don't, understand why this is important, but it's important because it's contagious. You know, the the person who works for you, if they know you're going through something and they see that you're just hyper-focused and 
continuing to work on behalf of the team, you know, what are they going to do next time something's tough for them? I mean, are they going to wallow in it or are they going to put it aside and try to do the same thing? And, you know, that behavior over time has huge benefits that accrue. And, you know, I think, uh, I think that's something we can all do. The other thing is the communication part. And, and, you know, I, I think we all need to rethink the way we, we communicate and, and, you know, there's no point in gathering a team together every week and telling them, we got to do this and do that. And, you know, no, it's about, it's just a lot of work. It's just walking around, talking to people one-on-one and letting them talk, you know, and hearing them and uh, correcting problems, going right. And then you see something wrong, you go out and talk to that person. Don't lecture them. You listen and you communicate have a conversation with them. And you, you know, that, that's something we can all do better because man, it's the temptation to just have a meeting and, you know, spill out your latest vision and walk away is, is really big for all of us. And I think um, if we start stop doing that and start spending more time walking around uh, and communicating individually in that Tim Duncan style, I think uh, you're going to see real, real benefits. So I have to ask you really quick, what, who would be some teams that you would say, you know what, these teams might be positioned to go on a little bit of a run? That's a great question. Um, you know, I, I think the I think the Celtics. You know, I mentioned them a little bit earlier. And I think they they have a lot of great um, qualities in this regard. Um, I'm trying to think of uh, I forget his name. Edmonton's uh, Edmonton's captain. Uh, it's Connor. Uh, uh, Con- Connor. Uh, uh, it's it's not David. Yeah. Uh, yes. I mean, you know, the NHL has this weird tendency to make um, kids captains, teenagers, you know, and, and superstars. But and I was skeptical. But um, what they did last season and, and the last couple of seasons just been really impressive. And you know, that's a, that's a good example right there. Um, you know, I think there are some teams that are really starting to build on this, and you know, there are some teams that I think are really thinking about character. And one of them is is um, Chicago Bears. I think you know they've, they've had their their troubles um but you know if you look at their draft and some of the moves they're making and their approach to um to building the team i think uh you know they've they're headed in the right direction uh you know i think a lot of the teams that are intelligently run throughout sports are you know making quiet moves revolving leadership that i think we all need to pay attention to um one of them was uh you know one of the most interesting ones was the english uh soccer team at the world cup and um you know, uh, they've just been really obsessive about trying to figure out the leadership uh, question, which has always been a problem for English teams. Um, and, you know, I talked a little bit to them and, and uh, about that during that process. And, and I was very happy to see the, the results. The team was very unified and happy and uh, played much more together than English teams usually do. So um, you're going to start to see a lot more of this. And just as we're wrapping up, we always have a few quick questions that we love to ask everybody. And the first is, what's one thing that's helping you either personally or professionally right now? Um, I am trying really hard to get better time management. And uh, I read a, a great uh, book by Morton Hansen, who's kind of a leader in this field. And I've been thinking a lot about it lately, just trying to figure out how to, uh, you know, little tricks and ways to eliminate things and to focus more on specific things and so that's been, that's been something i've been delving into right now the book's called great at work and uh it's it's a, it's a good read if you're someone who you know has trouble prioritizing as i do 
what advice would you give to someone who's eager eager to learn? Um, I would give two pieces of advice. The first is just shut up. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know why. I, mean, I know why. I think people when they're you know new to a place, they they kind of want to talk and they think they you know, need to impress. Um, I think the more time you spend talking and, and not listening, I think uh, you know, you're, you're just slowing down the process. But the main thing I always tell people. I don't know why there's such an emphasis on, especially young people who are so concerned about their status and their, their, their upward mobility in the organization. And I always say, acquire skills. You, know, you have the luxury when you're young and starting out in, a, in a, any business or anything. Um, you, know, you, you need to acquire skills, so you need to do some things you're not necessarily good at and put yourself in a lot of different positions because even if you're not going to master something, you know, having it is going to be what you're going to need later. Because when you move into a management role and take on real responsibility later in your career, you're going to have to draw on all those skills. And if you don't have them, you know, you're going to, you're going to be worse at your job. And if you, so what if you get there when you're 29, you know, you're okay, 29 year old CEO. Well, there's like six things that you can't do and have never done before. And that's going to kill you. So acquire skills. Don't worry if you fail or not even good at it. Just, just you know, spend your time learning how to do something, even if you'll never master it. If you could have everyone learn one thing, and it could be how to brew the perfect batch of sweet tea, <laughs> or it could be some highly philosophical thing, what would that one thing be? I mean, you know, I would really right now, I'd try to buy a car and like, can we fix it? car business like <laughs> learn how to like sell cars in a way that's not they're going to poke your eyeball with. no I, I think the philosophical thing i would say uh about that is just ask more dumb questions like everyone says ask a lot of questions ask dumb questions like the dumb questions are the best questions like you know why do baseball teams bunt you know why do we sing the national anthem at sporting events anyway why do we do that Every sport, every Bears, Bengals, like why, why are we seeing it? What's the point of that? And it's also like, why do companies have quarterly earnings? Why do they need to tell us every four times a year, give us this total, you know, just vomit up exactly how they're doing? Does it really matter? No. I mean, why can't we just, why do we do this? Why do we do these things? And, you know, I think that's, that's, I don't see enough of that. I just wish people were, were more willing to challenge these ideas that these things that we do just because we've always done them and that's the way they've done. We've never really thought about why. And then finally, uh, what are you learning right now? Uh, right now, you know, I'm learning a lot about um, a lot of things. I think in, and I'm looking a lot at, at technology because I'm trying to figure out uh, how, if there's a better way to map the leadership inside teams and, so I spent a lot of time thinking about um, AI and some of the things that it's doing because I'm trying to figure out a way that uh, teams and organizations can build uh, models that can kind of learn, you know, models that show the, the, the deep interaction and behavior inside the team and can actually take inputs and get smarter and start to see patterns for themselves. So um, I've been trying to brush up on, uh, on that world, which is really fascinating. Well, Sam, thanks so much for being on the Learner's Corner today. If people want to continue to learn from you, find the book, where's the best place for them to do that? Well, they can go to my website, which is bysamwalker.com. Uh, and I'm on Twitter, at Sam Walkers with an S. 
uh, and I'm, I'm a sort of half-hearted tweeter. Uh, um, but yeah, and it's you know on sale online everywhere uh, that, that they can think of. So uh, I, I urge them to go out and just dump a whole pile of money on. It. <laughs> awesome. Well, we recommend the book as well. And thanks again so much for being on the Learner's Corner today. Thanks, guys. Well, homie, I, you and I both, we love sport, and I really enjoyed that interview. Um, but I wanted to come to you. What? To learn. Thanks. Yeah, I think uh, one of the big things was humility and how um, yeah. and how it's not that the super, it's not really the superstars that... Um, Consistently, it wasn't the superstar who's the captain, who's the most important person. Yep, and that it wasn't that person, and just the implications of that, meaning that you don't necessarily need to be um, the most talented person right. to be the leader. And um, yeah, I think that's just one of them for me. It was just a good encouragement right. to me. I think of all the time Wes Welker, um, who, if you're a football fan, uh, Wes Welker died as a part of Patriots uh, back in '7 when they had that undefeated, um, well, <laughs> almost undefeated season. He was kind of the guy who kind of made the whole offense work there for a while. Super quiet guy. That was a he was part of a receiving core that had Randy Moss, who's one of the greatest wide receivers of the time. All that kind of stuff. But, but Wes Welker was quiet, so um, he was kind of the glue guy that held everything together. And there's tons and tons of stories of, of people like that. So yeah, check out this book. It's great. Um, it, it has great application directly to um, uh, the workplace and how to how to build great teams. Now, if you enjoyed this episode, the best way to make sure you don't miss our next episode is by subscribing to our podcast on whatever podcast player you use. And anytime that the episode or we drop an episode, which um, we might be having a, a, a bonus episode sometime here in November oh. as well. And so the best way to make sure that you don't miss that episode is by subscribing to our podcast and you won't miss it. And on the next episode, we are talking with Belina Hewitts or Hewitts and we are talking with her about um, contemplative spirituality. And if you're not sure what that is, you will find out. Google it. On our next episode. So, like I said, the best way to make sure you don't miss it is by subscribing. Leave us a rating. Write a review for how the iTunes algorithm works. The more ratings and the more reviews that we get, um, the more that we're able to expand these conversations. Leave those five stars, baby. And also, you can let us know things that you like about the podcast, how we can improve, and so on so forth also hit us up on social media we're on instagram twitter facebook um the learner's corner is and us personally as well um you know you can hit us up twitter for learner's corner uh or sorry twitter is learner's podcast instagram learner the learner's corner for me instagram caleb j mason what's your instagram todd at todd duke and then twitter for me is caleb mason and yours is just todd duke yep correct oh wait on instagram i'm at hicksonball todd sorry there you go. I got those mixed up. So hit us up. Let us know what you're learning about. Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast. My name is Kayla Mason. My name is not Kayla Mason. It's Todd Hicksonball. And until next time, keep learning and keep growing. Yeah.